Let's open our Bibles to um, the book of Isaiah this morning. I don't know if I've ever done a Christmas message quite like this one. It's a little bit different that the Lord gave me. And um, I just love the way the scriptures interconnect, how many times um, prophecy is a part of um, Christmas. As we'll see this morning, and we'll see um, New Testament teachings, Old Testament pictures. So let's dive in to a prophecy, uh, Isaiah 9, where Paul was reading for us earlier, both 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forevermore, in the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. With these verses this morning, just two of them, I would like to look at... um, uh, the birth of Christ from two different perspectives. Verse 6, a child is born. An earthly perspective, what was happening down here? How did we perceive it? And then number two, from a heavenly perspective, as a son is being given. So it's really two Bible studies that we're doing. Um, one from an earthly perspective and one as it would be seen uh, from a heavenly. Let's look at the heavenly perspective first of all and just flip back a page to chapter 7. The setting here is um, a king who really did not have a heart for the Lord at all and um, Isaiah is challenging him to uh, Go ahead and, and ask um, and, the, and to see that the Lord is real. He'll bring it, bring it to pass. Uh, we read in verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. It's, it's just really blowing him off. He really doesn't care. And so he, Isaiah says to him, All right, hear now, house of David. Is it a small thing that you weary men? But will you weary my God also? So he's not going to ask for a sign. So now we have the prophet slipping in a prophecy that is the foretelling of the birth of Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with man. So that's a sign. It's going to be supernatural, heavenly perspective, no male human intervention. Uh, Mary would be overcome, or overshadowed, I should say, by the Holy Spirit. And uh, Mary was the chosen vessel uh, to be the woman that would birth God in human flesh. When we look at um, this, the angel Gabriel actually appeared to Mary in Luke and told her that she was the one that was going to um, have this child and he was to be called Jesus. And the whole point of the Gospel of John is he starts with and he ends with trying to bring across the fact that um, Jesus is none other than the creator, God in the flesh. He begins the book that way and he closes the book that way. Let me just read the first four verses, three verses here. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So we have gods, literally. 
and Jesus being called the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So only the creator, God, is able to create all things. I'm going to be putting a picture of the galaxies up a little bit later. The immensity of his creation says that he asked, he measures the universe with the span of his hands. When God measures the universe, he goes like that. <laughs> and they keep changing it, how many billions of light years it actually is. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's because the Bible says he's stretching it out and it is expanding. That's a scientific fact. And um, then in verse 14 it says, The word, that is God, actually became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John's goal. He closes his gospel. It's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because... He only writes around seven miracles that Jesus did. He's very selective. And then seven I am statements. And the I am statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, so on and so forth. But there's seven of them. And that's also by design that there's seven. But the very last thing that John says in um, John 21, he says, there are many other things that Jesus did that I suppose if they were all written down, that the world itself could not contain the number of books that would need to be written because of all the things that God has ever done. Our, our God is eternal. I can't wrap my head around that. He never had a beginning. I can identify with not having an ending because I'm born again and I'm going to have a new body. I can identify with that. But I had a beginning in my mother's womb, just as you did. Not, not so with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, was, uh, I read through Genesis 1 the, uh, this last week, and I found it interesting because um, on the first day he created the heavens and the earth. And it talks about that the earth was created on, on, uh, on, the, on the first day. Second day he divided the land and the water, but it wasn't until the third day and the fourth day that he created uh, the galaxies. It says, and he also created the heavens and the stars. But before that, before the heavens and the stars, he created one light to rule by day and another light to rule by night. Now, mind you, the earth is already there. So what are you saying? The earth existed before the rest of the universe. The earth existed before the sun and the moon. The earth existed before there were stars. We'll be talking about stars a little bit this morning. I believe planet Earth is special and that it is the center of the universe. And um, that's going to tie into our message as, as we get a little, little bit farther along. But as we look at it from the heavenly perspective, we need to turn to the book of Galatians, Chapter 4, my birthday, my Christmas present from you to me is I want to hear those pages turning this morning. So if you don't have your Bible, there's one sitting in the pew in front of you, find it and find the book of Galatians. It is on page 1,188. And we read it in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, the order and purpose of of why Jesus was born. We read in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, that you can cry out, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What we have here in detail, it, apparently, there was a, a set time that the Messiah was to be born. And 
it would be when the fullness of time had come. Then it explains why. For the act of redemption, because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve, death entering in through one man, God sent Jesus into the world to redeem the world back to himself. When Adam and Eve sinned, they forfeited the birth, the, um, the title deed to planet Earth. The Bible clearly teaches that the devil is the god of this world. The world was redeemed and purchased um, on Calvary. The price was paid. But it's sort of like laying down money ahead of time for um, Christmas presents. You've already put money down, but you haven't gone and picked it up yet. Well, the price has already been paid. Jesus has not yet returned to reclaim all things and put all things under his authority and under his seat. We're living in that period of time called the Age of Grace. Uh, We're living in the church age where the most important thing and only thing that's important is making sure that your name is put in the book of life, that your sins are forgiven, and that Jesus Christ lives in your heart, and that's a good place for my first amen. Amen. That's what Christmas is all about. Why? Fullness of time that has come. For what purpose? To redeem you. You need redeeming. But you've been bought with a price a very, very valuable, most valuable commodity on this planet. But not only was man, uh, did they die spiritually, but something happened to the planet. Before the curse, um, the earth brought forth freely. Uh, Adam didn't have to work. So his punishment for... Um, disobeying the Lord is now you got to work by by the sweat of your brow. I mean, we we are a, we're techie in our time, but we're unique. That's not the way it's been for six thousand years. People worked the land. My grandpa cleared eighty acres by himself and uh, some horses, and then my grandma and mom would clear stones behind it, and they tilled the field, and that's how people worked. The majority. It's only this generation that has changed so much. And um, it's just a completely different world. But the earth was cursed. You can turn to Romans 8 if you want to. I'll just quote it. Romans 8, 18 talks about um, even the world groaning. Romans 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be in us. That's verse 18. 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God that we read about in Galatians 4. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who are the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. I hope um, that you're getting as sick of this world as I am. And, um, you know, it just gets worse every year. We shouldn't be surprised when the Lord talked about this generation. He said, these are the beginnings of sorrows. And, um, um, you know, it's sad to see this time of year. Judy and I were able to spend a couple of weeks in Arizona and I got to go hiking every day. And, and when I was driving, because Phoenix area is warm, you have a lot of people that are homeless that will actually gravitate because it's warm. I mean, it's like a 20 to 30 degrees difference just from Phoenix up to Sedona and up to the Flagstaff area. It could be snowing up in Flagstaff, and you can be swimming down, down, down in Phoenix. But it's... Um, Tolerable, I guess, is the right word to use for somebody who's homeless. 
And it's heart-wrenching when, when I'd be driving and you see almost on every other corner hungry and homeless. And um, most of them are legit. Sure, there's people out there who will take advantage of it. I saw one side said, need money, out of beer. <laughs> so, you know, there's people who have d- different takes and different reasons for being there. But you could clearly tell the ones that, um, for whatever reason, they got dealt a bad deck. And um, Randy's song, I just told him, I said, man, the lyrics of, of uh, uh, Christmas at Denny's, that's, that's reality. And reality is we're blessed. You're my family. I have a real family, uh, people that I know, I care about, and I love. And um, I don't know what I would do without it. There are families that are getting together um, right now that don't want to. And um, the only time they get together is Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, there's a song by David Wilcox called Covert War. Second service, you get all this extra stuff. First service, you get any of this stuff. But David Wilcox is a very gifted singer, talented songwriter, and starts out, Dear Mom and Dad, this is why I won't be at Thanksgiving this year. And basically, the song revolves around when the family gets together, Mom and Dad are at each other the whole time, and they just don't want to be there. So, so I'm not coming this year. And... That's the reality in the world that we live, that families are forced to get together even though they don't want to because it's family tradition. And um, I can honestly say getting together uh, with our family uh, here, um, you know, it really isn't any different to me. Yes, it's Christmas. But to me, it's just another opportunity to teach the word to worship the Lord and fellowship with you guys. And Acts chapter 2 says that's what we're supposed to do. You don't have to add anything to that or take anything away from it. Oh, I forgot one thing. Prayer and fellowship. Acts 2.42. Apostles doctrine, Bible studies. Fellowship. Everybody loves fellowship. Communion, we do that. Remembering what the main thing's all about. And then prayer. Very doable. I can do that my whole Christian life. But if you're going to throw in a bunch of programs and activities and, and uh, the, the world is already moving way too fast without adding those four things that I just mentioned. Another good place for an amen. So we all have our, our schedules. If you would, continuing looking at the heavenly perspective, go to Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, the heavenly perspective, the reason I went, I'm going here, it's the um, angel... And then angels, plural, appearing to the shepherds. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. This census first took place while uh, Cornelius was governor in Syria. So here we have the most powerful man in the world says, I think I'll tax the world right now. This is what I'm going to do it not knowing that there was a family in Nazareth that had to make their journey to Bethlehem. And he thought this was his decision to tax the world. No, it was a hand of the Lord working who, the Bible says, he holds the the king's heart in his hands. And he moves them and replaces them. He raises one up and he puts one down. Well, here this big shot, Caesar Augustus, thinks he's calling the shots now. He's just getting Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem because that's where the prophecy said he has to be born. Verse 4, Joseph was, went out from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, So it was, while they were there, the day was completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. Well, remember that. We all know that. But I'm going to bring it up in just a couple minutes in a different perspective. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, 
They were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Guys, would you put up on the screen the shepherd's fields? And we're going to leave this on the screen this morning because it's not just these fields that we were in just a month and a half ago that look exactly like this. Um, It's about seven miles south of Jerusalem. And from this vantage point to the right, you would be looking at the city of Bethlehem. But these are the shepherd's fields that we read about here. Now in verse 9, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. So the angel isn't in heaven. The angel is on the earth speaking to these common shepherds. And then the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, the heavenly perspective. All of a sudden, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Now, before we read what's being said here, just imagine the veil being ripped back and you get a picture and look into the next dimension where there's how many thousands of angels that are there that just can't hold it in any longer. I mean, the fullness of time has come. He's born. And heaven is going to make a song out of it. And so they can't hold back. The veil's ripped back. And they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. And I read this verse, I go, are you kidding me? Peace on this earth? Since they've been keeping track, I think I quoted, there's been 293 years or something like that of peace on planet earth when there hasn't been wars going on. So what in the world is being said here? What's being said and what is being meant in now is the time the fullness of time of redemption and we read in Isaiah he will be the prince of peace God sent his son to redeem so that you can have peace when you never had it before so is this peace for all people no only to those the goodwill here who have an open and honest heart to the gospel message, and they say, yes, I believe that. Right now, I don't have peace in my heart. And right now, nothing, I've been around the mountain, there's nothing out there that can fill this void. And um, only the Prince of Peace could bring that soundness of mind. That's the thing I love most about the Bible. It tells me what's going to happen before it happens. And it always tells me the truth. And I don't want to change anything. I don't want to add to it. I don't want to take away anything from it. Because now I'm on stable ground, and I know I'm on stable ground. And when it talks here, the angels are saying, man, for the first time, can actually have what is referred to as a peace that passes human understanding. We've watched the fires in California. Um, Puerto Rico tried to be put back together. Some people completely devastated And others have the attitude like Job. You know what? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're still alive. And um, and that's their attitude. Two completely different vantage points. Obviously, one's one's, uh, built their house on a solid rock. The storms, the winds, the waves came and beat upon it, but it stood. And Jesus says, those are those who hear my word. And do it. But then those who build their houses on sand, Christians aren't exempt from difficulties. Amen on that one? (laughs) Amen on that one. But if my house isn't built on that solid rock and it's built on sand or some philosophy or some teaching or my bankroll or my 401k, fill in the blank. The storms are going to come. And when they do come, you know, it's like the stories of 39 and there's stockholders in New York City jumping out of their windows committing suicide because they lost everything, because that's all they had. And 
it says, that house fell and great was its fall. Jesus says that's the man who hears the word of God but doesn't do it. Here's the word of God saying there will be peace. To who? The people who hear the word of God and build their house and their life upon it. I mean, what's the worst that could happen as a Christian? You could die. No, that's the best thing that could happen. I'm finding it out the older I get. You know, I'm a pilgrim and a stranger. And the second we lose sight that we're just passing through this world, you're missing the point. Because life is short. And um, the most important thing, and the sad thing is, you know, some people only hear this message twice a year. On Christmas and on Easter. And the rest of their, their time is sort of a moral thing, a family thing that we should probably do because um, it's Christmas time. Let's go on. Verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see the thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things that were told by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God uh, for all the things that they heard and seen, and it was told them. Gang, this happened in these fields that still exist. They look exactly like that, but I also um, want you to know that um, these fields are also the exact same fields. If you go back 1,000 years, this is where David was when Samuel came and the Lord told him that God had rejected Saul and he's looking for a man after his own heart. And he says, so go to Bethlehem and look for Jesse. And it's going to be one of his sons that I'm going to pick. Well, Abinadab was the first one. He was tall, dark, and handsome. And uh, Samuel says, nope, he's not the one. And he says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks after the heart. And he was looking for a man who was after God's heart. Where was he? He was out in the same fields. thousand years earlier. Same fields. And when we go there, it's just mind-boggling. I'm thinking, here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus was born there, and they're still unchanged. They look the same. There's a Bedouin family uh, that, that have been, it's been a part of their family for like over 100 years. And not everybody goes there. This is sort of a site that Pastor Chuck discovered, and uh, that's how I found out about it. But if I can get their attention like this, they're from here to the, um, the fellowship hall away. And if they can see us, what they will do is they will get their sheep out. And they will bring them out for our group because it's a great back setting for a Bible study on the shepherd's fields. And they know they're going to get some money for bringing them out. <laughs> and they were either um, not home, they weren't there this, this year. But um, talk about the Bible coming to life, giving a Bible study with that as a background. And, um, but that was 1,000 years earlier. All right, that's a heavenly perspective. Let's look at an earthly perspective by turning to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. It's interesting to me that the, it says that God hides these things from the wise, but he reveals his truth to the humble and the simple. God could have chosen to reveal himself to anybody, but here are shepherds. Um, That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't reveal himself to people who are extremely wise and gifted. I'm making my way up to the wise men because they had inside information from one of the wisest men who ever lived. We always 
think that these are three kings because of the Christmas song that we sing. We three kings, that one. They're not kings. I hope I'm not bursting any bubbles this morning. Uh, They're wise men. Never once does the scripture tell us they were kings. Matter of fact, they were not only wise men, but they were called magi from the word magic. And um, with that much of foundation, let's look at verse 1. Now when Jesus, of chapter 2, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, see, not kings, came from the east to Jerusalem. Now, we think they were kings because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they did that on purpose. And I'll get into that as we read it. Saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. I found a picture of a bright star, and I'm going to put that up at this time. There's a lot of stars, but there's one star in particular. And uh, it had appeared to them in the east. East of Jerusalem would have been Persia. And when Herod the king heard these things, and they're looking for the king of the Jews, Herod is not a Jew. Herod is an Edomite. And all of a sudden, uh, and don't get the picture of just three guys on three camels coming in here. We have a heavy-duty entourage that's coming in because um, the whole town is in an uproar about who these guys are. Let's continue on. It says, when they heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Don't miss that. Here, Herod the king is nervous, but the whole town is nervous. Over three kings? No. Hang in there. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet, it's Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not you the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. He wants to know what's going on. And when he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, and I will come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in Egypt went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Evidently, they were knowledgeable about astronomy, and they had some sort of insight into a particular star. If you're taking notes, in Numbers 24, verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not here. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it's a prophecy that somehow these wise men were able to determine when the fullness of time was and they would be looking for a star, an in particular star, that would somehow guide them to the one who would be the Messiah. The question is, uh, who are these guys? And where did they come from? And how did they have uh, this sort of insight? When we studied the book of Daniel, the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. He calls in his soothsayers, his astrologers, and magicians, short for magi. That's where we get the word from. They couldn't give Nebuchadnezzar what he was looking for. Daniel went, had a prayer meeting with the boys, and he laid it all out to him, every bit of it. And as a result, um, he made Daniel the second most powerful man in the world. Nebuchadnezzar was one, but Daniel was number two. We know that Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. 
And it was under Darius that he was made the second most powerful man under the Medo-Persian. So here is Daniel. He had a title, the role of Daniel. I'm reading now. One of the titles given to Daniel was Ramag, R-A-B-M-A-G, the chief of the Magi. If you're the most powerful man in the world, and these, all these other guys don't have it, the astrologers, even though they were into astrology, I believe there's an astrology like the Zodiac that's demonic. And I believe that these guys were demonically influenced with their abilities. But now they couldn't do what Daniel could. And now Daniel becomes the instructor to the point where he's called the chief of the Magi. Now we have wise men coming from the east. And evidently, if, D- if Daniel 9 can tell you the very day, April 632 AD, when Jesus would allow himself to be worshipped, and in uh, Daniel chapter 12, 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation, Jesus is going to return, we have dates of the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Do you think he had any problem as the chief guy over the Magi to give them an indication when the child was born? There's a lot of filling in between the lines that the Lord's going to do for us someday. But I have no doubt at all, these guys were just students. They were Bible students of Daniel. Daniel was a Bible student. He said, Daniel 9 verse 1, I understood reading the book of Jeremiah that 70 years was determined upon my people Israel. He knew exactly the time, 70 years. So when 70 years was up, he goes into prayer. He says, Lord, 70 years is up. Let's go home. And we have uh, Nehemiah getting the decree and the timing. I mean, the Bible is just mind-boggling. The deeper you go, the deeper it gets. Where You get to the point where if you study it enough and read it enough, you're a fool not to accept the full counsel of God. But you have to have all of it in order to put it together. It's like learning your ABCs. You can't read Shakespeare or anything unless you know how to do your ABCs and then your sentences. And and as you grow, there's there's this understanding that comes as we see how incredibly detailed God is with his word. So when we read about these wise men coming, I have, I have no doubt that, that Daniel had showed them the timing, the place, and uh, they were all excited. Herod, on the other hand, was all shook up because one of these jobs of these magi were godly men who accepted the God of Daniel. Uh, they are also had a, um, a title called the Kingmakers. And if I don't have time to get into all the history, but during the Persian Empire in particular, they were the ones that established the kingly line. And it's all because of, um, of uh, Daniel and his insights. All right, so enough with them. Let's go back to the earthly, just go back to chapter 1. And if we're going to have an earthly perspective of the coming of Jesus Christ, we need to find out his genealogy. Now, everybody sitting in this room has a genealogy. You know, um, because of your grandmas and grandpas, where you came from, the Doville family thought, we knew. My, my brother adopted uh, two girls, one from Russia, and he wanted to know where in Russia she was from, so he did a DNA test on her. And uh, she's Scythian, what we found out. And then he was so curious, he thought he'd run and went on himself. Now, I know I'm French. Deauville, if you say it right. Deauville is saying it wrong. Deauville is the French way of saying it. And Tischendorf, well, that's grandma side, that's clearly, that's clearly German. So all of our lives, we're German-French. Except when my brother did the DNA test and found out we're mostly Irish. <laughs> Some people say that explains some things. (laughs) But here's a genealogy. Jesus has his genealogy. 
just as you have yours. In verse 1 it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Remember Tamar, I'll be coming back to her. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Ahimadab, and Ahimadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So here we have running through this genealogy, three women, and in closing I'm going to bring in one more, but for right now I'm interested in the virtuous one, and her name is Ruth. So let's go back to the book of Ruth, and I want you, as you're turning, remember my saying that I like so much for every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. What is the teaching from the book of Galatians about Christmas? That when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to do what? To redeem it. Redemption. A certain time to accomplish a certain mission. And the mission was to redeem you and me, to be sons of God, but more on a romantic in the way the Lord, if we're to love the Lord our God first and foremost, Love's got to be the key factor. Therefore, we're called the bride of Christ. Not just sons of God, but more truly, the bride of Christ. The Old Testament picture, in my mind's eye, is the book of Ruth. I'm not going to read all the book of Ruth. I'm going to take you very quickly for the first three chapters, and we'll dwell a little bit more on chapter 4. But the first thing I want to point out is I want the picture of the shepherd's fields, please, Put back up on the screen. Because the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges, about a 360-year period of, of time. And here we have a slice of one person's life. Because we read in verse 1, It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem of Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Here we are back to the shepherd's fields, but this time it's with Boaz. So when again, when we're there, this is where Boaz fell in love with Ruth. This is where David was tending his sheep, and this is where Jesus was born, all in this same spot. And what basically we have here is there's no food in Bethlehem, and they have to go with their two sons who are called Melan and Chilion, um, and they go to Moab, and uh, they, sons, meet uh, two women, Ruth in verse 4, and Orpah, who always makes me think of Oprah, (laughs) for some reason, and um, they get married, and um, they're both Moabites, and... um, these two men die, and so does Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And she's devastated. And she hears a rumor that there's food once again in Bethlehem. And she takes her two daughter-in-laws, and she says, Girls, I'm going home. You stay here. And they said, No, we're going with you. And they argued about it. Um, Orpah... She turned and went home, but um, Ruth said she would not have any part of it. In verse 16, um, I've done this at almost every wedding I've ever done, this, these verses that Ruth said to Naomi. Verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. So she's going from being an Edomite to believing in the God of Naomi. And where you die, I will die. Where And there will I be buried. And the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death puts you and, and, and me. In other words, 
Naomi, don't argue with me. I'm going with you, and I'm going to take care of you until the day I die. So the whole town sees Naomi and Ruth coming. And there's a big uproar, and they're all happy. And um, they said, Naomi, good to see you. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because she says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I lost my husband. I lost my two sons. Um, uh, Ruth is a Gentile, and she has, she has come back. But they had to sell their property before they left because of their poorness. Now, in the law, when the land was divided up, there was a provision made in the law that if you had to sell your land, uh, you could eventually redeem it if you, you could have the money and the redemptive power and uh, the family line because every tribe was given a portion of land and the land stayed in that family unless they lost it or sold it. So that land belonged to them. Problem is, they, they come back and they have nothing. So in chapter 2, we have Ruth meeting Boaz. Okay, who is Boaz? He owns all these fields that you're looking at here. He's the wealthiest guy in town. And he's a chairman. He would uh, go to the fields that it was, when they came back, it tells us it was harvest time, barley time. And uh, to their social program, their welfare program for the poor in the Bible says that when you glean your field, you can't glean the edges because there's going to be poor people. And the poor people, they get to glean the fields. All right, so Boaz comes to check out the foreman. How's the day work going? And he comes up to him and he says, praise the Lord. How would, your, how would you like your boss to meet you on Monday morning and say, praise the Lord? Yeah, I liked you, Dwight, but you're dreaming. <laughs> what a great, great boss to have. And um, he says, by the way, who's the, new, who's the new girl over there? Oh, that's Ruth. She's the gal that came back with Naomi. Oh, I, I heard about her. I heard she's a virtuous woman. And I think he's looking at her, and she's very good looking at the same time. And he says, come here, foreman. Listen up. First of all, you talk to the boys, hands off. Nobody, nobody touches her, rule number one. Rule number two, let her glean wherever she wants to, not just around the edges. Number three, make sure you take some of your grain and put it out so she can find it. And so she, when she went home from gleaming that day and she came to Naomi, Naomi goes, where in the world were you gleaning today? She said, well, in, in Boaz's field. And Naomi's and Yentel tennis went oing. <laughs> He's in her kinsman. He's in our bloodline. And she had a little talk with Ruth. And she said, you know, the guys are going to be partying tonight because the harvest is over. And when the party's over, they're going to sleep by their stash of wheat. What I want you to do is put on your best gown uh, make yourself attractive. And when nobody's looking and I want you, it's midnight and everybody's asleep, I want you to sneak up to Boaz and crawl underneath his covers by his feet. So she does. About midnight, Boaz wakes up. And he looks down and it's Ruth. And she says to him, will you do your responsibility as a kinsman redeemer? You see, he has the right, because they're related, to buy back the land. And now Ruth, who he, well, let's just read, um, um, go, go to chapter 3. This has happened, uh, verse 8, it happened at midnight that the men uh, were startled, at this boy has turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet, and he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a near kinsman. The word there is goel. Kinsman, redeemer. 
begin to remember Galatians 4. Why was Jesus sent into the world? To redeem it. All right, the next thing, he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, rich or poor. So we're finding here, evidently, there's an age difference between the two, and he's saying it doesn't seem to bother you, and basically you're proposing to me. (laughs) And uh, then he says in verse 11, he says, Do not fear. I will do all that you request for all the people know in town that you're a virtuous woman. So in chapter 4, he gathers the whole city of Bethlehem together. And the way a legal transaction would have been implemented in those days would, would have been at the city gate. We have one problem. There is one person in Naomi's family that's closer in relationship than Boaz. And he has the first right. And if he wants to redeem the land, then that other one who goes unnamed here, in in verse 1, he gathers everybody together, and he says, friends, sit down. If you have the King James, he calls this guy, Hosechuan. He says, Hosechuan, come on over here, sit down. Uh, You know that Elimelech is dead, You know that they traveled, they went to Moab, lost everything. And um, I'm here today because you and I are related, and we both have the right, by the law, to purchase the land that belonged to Elimelech. And you got first rights. You're closer in relationship. And the guy says, I'll take it. Nice piece of property. He says, Oh, one other thing, and the day that you buy the property, you got to take a look what goes along with the son-in-law that died who married Ruth. You have to marry Ruth too. And the guy says, I can't do that. My wife would kill me. <laughs> now, either that was the reason he said no, or the other reason is that we have a Jew marrying a Gentile which is forbidden. And now begin to connect the dots, church. Jews being accepted into the Gentile world. How could that possibly happen? Well, he turns it down. And so Boaz says, he stands up and he says before the whole city, let it be known this day, everything that belonged to Elimelech, his property, I'm buying it. And the way they signed the contract was by taking off a sandal and handing it over. And then he said, everybody got it? Everybody understand that that now belongs to me? But here's my question as we begin to start to wind this thing up. Go to Matthew chapter 13 in the New Testament. The gospel in the Old Testament, I love it. In verse 44, Jesus says, the church age, uh, the, the preaching of the gospel is given to us in parables. Chuck used to say, don't even think about teaching the parables unless you've been around for 20 years because most people usually get it, get it wrong, the meaning. Such is the case with the parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which what a man found and hid for George goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy the field. Now, if you read the commentators, they'll say, well, this is a picture of a Christian that uh, gives up all that he has so that he can be a follower of Jesus Christ. We even have a song called, I Surrender All. I surrender all. Oh, no, you don't. Neither do I. If we're honest, right? Well then, who did surrender all? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who took on the form of flesh who had everything. To do what? To buy another field? Show the picture of our galaxy here. Oh, I think he's got plenty of stars and plenty of galaxies out there, our creator. But he gave up everything to redeem this one. 
even the curse that's on this one. Well, why would he do that? For the same reason Boaz bought his field. You think Boaz was interested in another piece of property? No. What was he interested in? He was interested with what came with the property. He wanted Ruth. He wasn't interested in the field. Gang, this parable here is the book of Ruth. He sold everything so that he could purchase this pearl as a treasure. You know that pearls are valuable, especially black ones. And as we remember this and that God really does love you that much that you are that pearl of great price. You know why? Because there's only one of you. You are a very unique personality. Your DNA is a little bit different, but you're one of a kind, therefore making you extremely precious to your heavenly Father. In Psalm 139, he says, O Lord, your thoughts towards me are more than the sands of the sea. I take that literally. He's nonstop thinking about you. And he's doing everything in his power to woo you to himself. But it's a gift, and you can either accept it or reject it. Now, let's close by looking at chapter 1 again. And I go here for a reason. Because I remember before I I was, was a Christian, I would have been considered the last thing... <clears throat> <laughs> being Christian. I went to class reunions for 30 years and I still didn't believe after 30 years I was a Christian because they knew me in high school. <laughs> I'm going here because there's four women that are mentioned here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and in verse 6 we have King David begot Solomon by the one who had been the wife of Uriah. They don't even call Bathsheba by name. Three out of the four are either harlots or a prostitute. Three out of the four. Ruth was the only virtuous one. What's your point, Dwight? That the very genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ in the bloodline, Tamar, uh, put on prostitute's clothes because she felt she wasn't getting her portion of land. She deceived Judah. We have Rahab. Well, who was Rahab? She was the one who hid the two spies before Jericho was destroyed. And um, she was afraid. And so Rahab hid the two spies. And all she could say is, we know that Jericho's coming down. Would you spare me? And she was basically asking, don't kill me. And the two spies says, I tell you what, you don't tell anybody that we were here, and you hang a scarlet thread down your window, and when, this, when we come against Jericho, everybody who's in your house will be spared. Anybody outside your house will not be spared. She said, deal. That's Rahab. She was Rahab the harlot. Um, Job, uh, Joshua 6.17 says, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are in her house because she hid the messengers that we sent. A harlot? And the royal line of Jesus Christ? Oh yeah. Bathsheba too. She was an adulterer. And um, what's interesting as we follow the genealogy, it goes right up to David. And um, so, you know, her saying that to these men, and I'm saying this for those of you who think there's no way that I could not only ever be a Christian, but the Lord could ever use me. And I'm here to tell you on Christmas Eve Sunday morning 2017, there's nothing you've ever done 
that could ever stop the Lord Jesus Christ from cleansing you from all of your sins and make you white as snow. Good place for an amen. But not only that, he chooses to use those who are forgiven much, they love much. And those who realize what wretches we really are and were, that we have this sort of attitude of gratitude, that if he's done that for me, what can I do for you? Oh, I'll put you to work, and I'll put your name down in the book of life, and you'll be a part of the lineages and heirs of salvation. Heirs of the king and the creator of the universe. Hmm, that's going to look pretty good. And that's exactly what he's promised. So in closing, if you ever thought that um, uh, you don't qualify because of a sin in the past, tonight in the Doyle family growing up as a kid, um, we would get ready for church. Either mom or dad would say, oh, I forgot something. And they would go back in the house for at least 20 minutes because they were getting the stuff out of the attic and putting it under the tree. So by the time we got back, Santa Claus had come while we were at church. Well, we had it figured out after a couple of years, you know. But um, when we got home, it's, it's the thing that Randy was talking about earlier. You can rip open all those presents. You can get exactly what you want for Christmas, and it'll satisfy you for who knows how long. It just doesn't satisfy because it's stuff. And stuff doesn't satisfy the spirit. Only the things of the spirit can satisfy the things of the spirit. Everything else is the lust of the flesh. Is it wrong to be rich and wise? No. The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In the millennium, when Jesus is going to reign, we are going to bring gold and incense. But when you read Zechariah, it leaves out the myrrh. Why? Gold is a symbol of kingship. Frankincense is a high priest. The myrrh was embalming the death of Christ. And Jesus, dying once, will never die again. He's alive forevermore at the right hand of the Father. So during the millennium, isn't it interesting that they leave out myrrh? Gold's there, frankincense is there, myrrh isn't there. That's not just a coincidence. That's the Holy Spirit working this in. So there is a gift It says in Romans 5, Therefore, as though one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Romans 6.23, If you reject the gospel after hearing it, you've created what the Bible calls um, the the sin of blasphemy. The only sin that will never be forgiven in this life or the life to come. Well, what's that sin? When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and say no, you've just committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. How so? Because it's the only way to be saved. So he can't be forgiven. When Jesus said uh, that uh, he was the way, the truth, and the life, and uh, there's... No other way into heaven except through him. That's the, the narrow way. And if you reject it, then it says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. My favorite one here is one of gratitude. For a grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. You see, it's not about you. The volume of the book is not about me or you. It's about these beautiful love stories where we see Jesus as a type of Boaz who's in love with a woman named Ruth, who you are. You're the bride. And, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Second Corinthians 9.15, our last verse that we can all say amen to, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. We can leave it at that. Let's stand. Lord, here it is, Christmas Eve morning, 2017. And first of all, we say thank you. 
that you're faithful to forgive us when we stumble or fall. For those who think Christmas is nothing more than getting together with family and friends, some wanting to, some not wanting to. I pray that through our study of your word this morning, we could see the depths and the riches of this book. And this free gift that we don't deserve, we don't earn, but because you love this world so much that um, you sent your son to redeem us, our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, to bring unto himself the church for the wedding feast of the bride that, Lord, we look so forward to. So again, we thank you for the word of God, the power that it has. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would go before those that are traveling, those that aren't here today because they are with family and friends. Keep them safe and bless them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.